And that brings us to our scripture reading for this morning. Uh, We will be reading Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. So this is Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Here are these words from the book that we love. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I will forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Then, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgive, forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy with you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, I just want to say, as the pastor of Liberty Northeast, I am extremely grateful for your generosity. I know when you look at the numbers and you're like, hey, we budget it a certain number and we're like $43,000 behind uh, that budgeted number. Uh, part of that's on us, right? Like we projected, we also didn't know like a pandemic was going to happen. I mean, if you did, you should have told everybody. But we didn't know a pandemic was going to happen, and you guys have been extremely generous. And I know some of you are be- just being so sacrificial with your finances, and you're scraping the bottom of the barrel to help us move forward. I thank you particularly for that. And I thank the, our, our donors from the outside. Some may be even watching or listening later to this sermon. I just want to thank them as well. They've really stepped up. As Peter showed you, gave us $74,000 extra. So the Lord's been really good to us, right? So whether you've been doing it, uh, people believe in you. And so that's why they want to give you money to further the mission here in Northeast Philadelphia. I'm Pastor Evan, if I didn't say that yet, and we're in our series, Called Out Ones. Today we're going to talk about radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Forgiveness of all the topics we're going to cover. Some of you can be like, I identify with that one. I don't identify with that one. I'm safe. I'm good. But this is the one where everybody could do a better job. We all could do a better job of forgiveness. You're not perfect. Unless you're Jesus, You have not figured this out. You have not found out a way to do this perfectly. And so I want to challenge you today, but also encourage you. And I want to talk to you about 
Alex McCammond. I don't know if people know who Alex McCammond, oh, sorry, Alexi McCammond is. Uh, Alexi McCammond, in March, she was, she's 27 years old. She was named editor-in-chief at Vogue magazine. So you made, or Teen Vogue magazine. If you don't know about Teen Vogue, that's probably a good, good thing that you don't know about that. But her whole platform, she wants to lift up stories and voices of our most vulnerable communities. That was going to be her job. That's what she wanted to do until some people found, tell me if you've heard this story before, some old tweets. They found some old social media posts with derogatory things aimed at Asian Americans. So this internal revolt at Teen Vogue took place and McCammon stepped down. Now, when did McCammon write these tweets? When did she put up these social media posts? When she was a teenager, when she was 17. Now, if you're a teenager, just a reminder for all of us, anything you write on social media is in pen, it's not in pencil. People can always find out, and these kinds of situations happen. And even though McCammon apologized, it didn't matter. So one commentator wrote in response to why no one is, he says, like, what, how can we possibly live in this kind of world? Like, what is this world that we're living in where somebody writes something when they're 17 and then when they're 10 years later, they're up for a job promotion? They can't get it because somebody surfaced something they did 10 years ago. And when they apologize, we don't forgive them. And one commentator, as he's writing, he says, the draconian standards of cancel culture have no space for mercy, forgiveness, and the recognition of man's fallibility. If we continue down this treacherous road, treacherous road, no one is safe. We're all criminals with targets on our backs. We've lost the ability to forgive. And cancel culture shows us that. We've lost the ability to forgive. We've gotten to the point when, when somebody messes up, even when they mess up as a kid, even when they apologize, we can't find it in ourselves to forgive them. And if we can't forgive, that commentator is right, we're all criminals with targets on our backs, because it doesn't matter. Somebody's going to find something on you they're going to deem unforgivable. And if we don't have this reflex in our culture and in ourselves where we can forgive people, we will not be able to move forward as society. We're all criminals with targets on our backs. You are. I am. So rather than live in a world of radical forgiveness that Jesus calls us to, we live in a world of radical non-forgiveness. And I think I just want to pause for a second because if you have a background in, in church you may be aware of this, but cancel culture is just the religious right of the 21st century. So before we pick on secular people for driving cancel culture forward, cancel culture forward, we have to remember during the religious right movements in the 90s and the 80s, we did the same exact thing. We found something we deemed unforgivable and we shut it down. So we don't live in a world of radical forgiveness. We live in a world of radical non-forgiveness. And in Peter and Jesus' world, rabbis would say that the maximum number of times you are to forgive somebody is three times. 
And if you forgave them three times, you no longer are obligated to forgive them, which is really damning for your children. But three times, that's it. So Peter, he knows Jesus is radical. He knows Jesus is walking around. He's talking about the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation. He's like, I'm radical too. I'm with Jesus. Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody before I'm no longer obligated to? Seven times? He's like, yo, I took the rabbi's thing. I times it by two and I added one. I'm radical, right, Jesus? And it's easy for those of us who know Jesus' answer to look down on Peter. But Peter just doesn't want to be taken advantage of, right? Who wants to be taken advantage of? And he doesn't want to do more than he's actually obligated to do. We do the same thing. We say, Jesus, I I understand what you say, Jesus. I know it's radical. I know you're asking me to love my enemies. I know you're asking me to forgive. I know you're asking me to pursue reconciliation and love and peace. But come on, Jesus. That guy, I got to forgive him? Jesus' ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation is radical, so surely he can't require me to forgive more than seven times. Like, Jesus is radical, but he's not crazy, right? But Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. 77 times. 77 times is Jesus' way of saying unlimited number of times. If you're like me, you're getting a little bit older. Your memory's not that good. So once you started forgiving somebody in the 30s, you don't know how many times you forgave them, right? Jesus is saying, forgive, 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 forgive. And so you can't remember how many times you forgave. But just keep doing it. It's radical. It's radical for the first century. It's radical for the 21st century. It is radical forgiveness. I don't know what your background is. But if you're like me, you're sure glad that Jesus forgives an unlimited number of times. There's things just driving the church today that I need to be forgiven of and forgiven for. And to be called out ones, we need to understand that radical forgiveness we've received from God changes our hearts to forgive those who've hurt us. Because we've received radical forgiveness, we can give radical forgiveness. Tim Keller, when he talks about the five things that we're going through this, in this series, he talks about the early Christians were often excluded and criticized, but they were also actively persecuted, imprisoned, attacked, and killed. Nevertheless, Christians taught forgiveness and withheld retaliation against opponents. They're being killed, imprisoned, and attacked, and they say, Forgive. We forgive you. So radical forgiveness must be complete and radical forgiveness must be given. Those are two things. It must be complete and it must be given. And that's what I want to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, we're Matthew 18. We're going to talk about radical forgiveness must be complete. Picking up in verse 23. 
Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Complete forgiveness, radical forgiveness, releases the offender and it clears their debt. And what Jesus is doing, he's telling this story and he's saying this, there's a story here where the king who's supposed to be, represent God, he's a master and he has this servant and the servant's supposed to represent you and me. And he's saying, this is the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like. God's rule on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the kingdom of God is, is as God's rule on earth. And Jesus is saying, if you're living a life where God's in charge, where God is ruling your life, and you're part of a community of called out ones that are living out the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like to live under God's rule. You live like somebody who's been forgiven by his master. 10,000 talents in today's money is around $1 billion. So imagine this. Enter the story. You're living in the first century. You're poor. You have nothing. And the king's willing to give you money, but you got to pay it back. And because the king has complete power over your life, he can call on his debts whenever he wants, and he calls in his debts, and he says, you owe me one billion dollars. And you can't pay. Like, how could you? You're poor, right? How could you pay one billion dollars? You can't. So he says, okay. I'm going to take your wife and children. I'm going to sell them into slavery. Hopefully, I'll get some money off of that. And you're going to go to jail. And again, you're in the first century, right? You, there's no option. There's no way you're going to pay it back. Like, no matter how hard your wife and your children work, they're never going to pay back a billion dollars. And you're in jail, right? There's no internet side hustle. Like, you can't, like, stock, like cash in your IRA or put your money in stocks. Like, it's not going to happen. You're not getting out of this. There's no way. You will die in prison. You'll never see your wife and your children again. So what would you do? You do the same thing as the servant. You fall on your knees and say, please give me more time. And you only fall on your knees and you only ask for more time when you realize how much you owe. And you know that the person calling in the debt has every right to do so. So you are literally at the crossroads of life and death. See, Jesus wants us to see that. Jesus wants to see the desperation of the servant and realize there's no way he's going to pay this off. Everybody in this, listening to the story in the first century, there's no way this guy's going to pay this off. Like, I don't know how long your wife can drive Uber and deliver DoorDash, but she's not going to be able to pay that off. In the first century, women and children 
They're not getting the good jobs. So Jesus wants to see the desperation, the man's at the crossroads of life and death. What's the master going to do? If he's like you and me, if he was me, sorry, bro. That's a bummer. Yeah, I loaned you $1 billion, bro. I need some of that back because I got a kingdom to run. So, yeah, your wife and your kids, they're mine. I'm selling them off, and you're going to jail. But it's not what the master does, does he? The master shows radical forgiveness. Notice this. What does the man ask for? More time. What does the master do? Clear his debts. It's radical. Like he owes a billion dollars, and he says, can I just have some more time, please? And he says, you know what? Let's just wipe it clean. See, when people offend me, in some sense, they're in my debt. They owe me something. But I'm called to release them, one, and two, clear their debts. If my wife and I have an argument about something she did, which is very rare when she does something wrong, I like to put that on the record. If my wife and I have an argument over something she did that hurt me, and I forgive her in the moment, I release her. But if every time we get into a new argument, I bring up the past hurt, that past thing that she did to me, I never cleared her of her debt. It's one thing to forgive somebody. It's another thing to clear their debt. So I don't randomly remind her of it anytime I get a chance. Hey, remember when you did that thing? That sucked. That hurt. Or I don't bring in that old hurt into any new arguments that we have. Oh, yeah, just like that last time when you did that? Yeah. So now you're doing this to me? How could you? I don't rub her face in it, and I don't hold grudges against her. Instead, my forgiveness is to mirror the complete forgiveness of God towards me. Jesus says, forgive her for the offense and allow her to go living her life. Jesus says, forgive the people who've hurt you for their offenses and allow them to go about living their lives. And I think that's probably part of you right now, you're asking, well, does that mean I have to forgive and forget, because some of you have been really, 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 really severely hurt. And I like when you ask questions that are in my sermon notes. It would be unwise if you're severely hurt to jump into the deep end of the pool without taking time to build trust to get there. Some of us don't know how to swim, and we can't swim yet, and so we just jump in the... We think people are saying, when we have to forgive, I just need to jump into the deep end of the pool where I'm going to drown. And i got to act like that thing that happened never happened. That would be unwise. Memory makes you wise, right? If your kid sticks their finger into the socket, in the wall socket, the chances of them sticking their finger in a wall socket ever again is not going to happen. I remember the time I stuck my finger in a wall socket when I was five years old. Five! That's over 30 years ago, and I still remember what that felt like. I thought there was like a little elf inside that bit my finger. Like it was something like that. It felt so like I'd never want to do that again. 
So it would be unwise for you to put your children in situations again with that person who hurt you. That would be unwise or hurt them. Or you would never put somebody who stole money from you in charge of your financial planning. That would be unwise. But you're supposed to forgive them. There are consequences for their actions. Sorry, bro, you lost the client. And you know what? I'm not going to recommend anybody to you. And anybody ask him to say, sorry, man, like, look, he's a great guy. I love him. But I would go find a financial advisor someplace else. Hey, that person who babysat my kids, they hurt them. Don't let them babysit your kids. There's consequences for that. Sorry, you can't have a babysitting job if you're hurting kids. That's just not, not allowed. But when it comes to that offense, when it comes to that thing that hurt me, when I recall it, I'm called to recall it, remember it truthfully. I'm not, call, I'm not allowed to exaggerate what happened. I'm not allowed to add to the story. I'm supposed to recall it truthfully. This is what happened, plain and simple. I don't make it bigger than it actually was. I don't add motives into what they did. If I don't know what their motives were, I remember it truthfully. Memory makes us wise, but it cannot be the thing that holds us back from forgiving others. Forgiveness As Miroslav Volf says, forgiveness helps us shape our memory around hope. Notice in the story, Jesus says, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master's heart breaks for the servant in his debt. Out of pity is the same word in the Greek That when Jesus saw the crowds, he had what? Pity on them. Compassion on them. Compassion makes all the difference. When you recall how someone hurt you, instead of giving into anger, try giving into compassion for them. Rather than be angry at them, say to yourself, it breaks my heart that she felt the need to talk to me that way. It breaks my heart that he stabbed me in the back. It breaks my heart that she's so incredibly deep into anger and giving into that. It breaks my heart that he chose addiction over love for our family. It breaks my heart that she's choosing bitterness over joy. It breaks my heart that his heart is so broken that he would prey on a vulnerable person like her. Compassion makes all the difference. Compassion doesn't ignore it, but acknowledges the hurt. But compassion also makes me realize how sinful that person really is and how much they need Jesus. So instead of remembering in anger, we remember in hope. We hope that that person the person who hurt us so deeply will come to know Jesus and be forgiven by him. And so what happens when we do that, our, their identity switches from being someone who's in debt to me, but being in debt to God, which, by the way, is more of a problem. It's more dangerous to be in debt to God than to me. 
It's a debt they're never going to pay off unless Jesus forgives them of their debt. And I hope, I hope he will bring that person to repentance and forgive them. But he's not or she's not in debt to me. They're in debt to God. And I hope and I pray for them that they will know the love of Christ because it breaks my heart that they did that. Jesus on the cross prays to God about his killers, the people who are murdering him. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus acknowledges their sin in that statement, doesn't he? They're doing something. But in compassion, out of pity for them, he holds out hope that God will forgive them. So pick up again in verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And you're supposed to picture this servant doing the same exact thing that the, this, the servant who's choking him out right now got, did in front of the master. Now this servant is doing it in front of his fellow servant. He's saying, have patience with me, right? Give me more time and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The servant who's been completely forgiven fails to show complete forgiveness to his fellow servant, who owes him, by the way, pennies, five to six thousand dollars compared to the one billion dollars he owed the king. I'm not very good at this, to be honest. I'm not a very forgiving person. I'm actually very good at holding grudges. I've jokingly referred to it as a spiritual gift of mine. Like if I'm so good at it, it must be a gift from God, right? So I tell people to their faces that I forgive them, but in my heart I remain angry and bitter and I replay the game tape over and over and over again in my head. When I see the person, I outwardly smile, but inwardly I sneer. And while I won't be the person who does it, I secretly hope somebody slashes their tires. I secretly hope that at some point they're going to get a big piece of humble pie and they're going to choke on it. Or that in some way they're humiliated the same way they humiliated or hurt me. And I keep their, my distance from them and they're dead to me. Why do I do it? Because I want to be in power over that person. I want to have power over others. And if they're always in my debt, I think I have power over them. And you do this too, don't you? Don't you think that by holding something against somebody that you actually are in power over them? But let me ask you, how often do you think about what that person did? 
How often does it affect your decisions? How much sleep are you losing over it? How much of your thoughts, how many of your thoughts are being eaten up by it? Are they being eaten up by it constantly? You're constantly thinking about it. And honestly, how long do you plan to wait for that person to make it up to you? That person who hurt you so deeply, how long do you plan to wait for them to realize it, what they've done, and come apologize to you? Let me just challenge you. If you frequently think about the pain, you're losing sleep over it, or you're still waiting for an apology, you're not the one in power. They are. We fool ourselves into thinking that we're the ones in power when we aren't. And what we'll do is we'll nurse bitterness and grudges and then the offense gets bigger and bigger and bigger in my life. And I can't even remember truthfully what happened in the past. And because you've been hurt by them, you're unwilling to trust others now. Because you've been hurt in the past, you're unwilling to trust in the present. So you start every new relationship with the same old pain. And you write your pain into other people's stories. You treat your husband like he's going to turn into your passive father. You micromanage your wife's parenting because you don't want her to turn into your manipulative mother. So you say, hey, babe, that was a nice try. Let me tell you how to parent. Because I don't want you to turn into my mom. You never say that part. but. And you act like your new church is your old spiritually abusive one. And that person, that church, that whatever, has to prove to you that they aren't like that person. Do you see how messed up that is? You're making people prove to you that they aren't that person in the past that hurt you. That's messed up. And I do it too. And so we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop or waiting for the whole thing to just come crashing down, you're never going to build strong relationships that way. Never. You're never going to be as invested in a church or as invested in a job if you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop and you're waiting for that person to let you down because that person back in the day who hurt you, you're writing the pain that you experienced with them into a new person's story, into a new church's story, into a new job's story. And then so you'll never build relationships that way, and you'll become lonely and sad. Meanwhile, that person who hurt you, they never think about it. Never. They're getting a great night's sleep every night. And they go about living their life like it never happened. You're not the master. You're a mental and emotional slave to someone else. See, if you won't completely forgive, Jesus is saying you won't be completely free. That person, they're not thinking about it. They really aren't. And you are being destroyed by it. All the while fooling yourself that you're in power over that person and you're waiting around for them to pay back whatever they owe you. We want to be the master without the master's heart. You're not the master in this story. 
You're actually the unforgiving servant who chokes out other servants. You owe God billions, and you're spending your time strangling people to pay you back pennies. And the irony of the whole thing is you end up choking out yourself. Only radical forgiveness will set you free. Only radical forgiveness will set you free. So radical forgiveness must be given. So the master, he finds out what the servant did. And in verse 34, the master, the, the, Jesus says, and his, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The actual word for that is torturers. But because there's kids that read the Bible, sometimes we change up words, make them less intense. You know what I mean? No, you don't? Okay, moving on. He delivered him over to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. Again, he's never going to pay it back, but he's doing it anyway. He's punishing him. And check out what Jesus says. Good, kind, loving, gentle Jesus. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Radical forgiveness must be given to those who hurt us. Because we've received radical forgiveness. See, Jesus' parable is a warning. The forgiveness we've been given must be given to others. And a heart closed off to showing and giving forgiveness is a heart that probably never experienced it itself. Or to put it more plainly, there's a real danger in not forgiving others. You're probably not a Christian. Because if your heart was forgiven by God, Jesus is saying there's no way you should be holding back forgiveness. Jesus said, if you, do not for, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The wicked servant's problem is not the action of forgiveness alone. It's not that he just forgives somebody. He says, hey, I forgive you. But that his heart was never affected by the master's forgiveness. It's not a problem. In some sense, it is a problem but not what Jesus is trying to drive at in the story, that he chokes out another servant for not paying him back. The problem is that his heart was never affected by the forgiveness that his master showed him. And because it wasn't, he wasn't able to respond out of that forgiveness by forgiving his fellow servant. Listen to me. No one has a debt with you like you have with God. Do I need to say it again? No one... No one has a debt with you like you have with God. No one. We are all criminals with targets on our backs when it comes to God. But God, God's forgiveness is radical. So radical that God the Son would take radical steps to make it happen. He would take on human flesh, move into the first century Palestine, 
as a poor man to live like us, died for our sins and rose again so that you can be forgiven when you put your faith and trust in him. And God, God, the one who you owe more than anyone owes you, completely forgives you. He releases you and clears you of your debt. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you so freaking much. He can't watch you live as somebody unforgiven. And because the cross and the resurrection happened, I can forgive those who've hurt me. You can forgive pennies if you know you've been forgiven billions. I've noticed from my kids that anytime they have a lot of something, a lot of money or candy, they're quick to give it away to somebody who wants some. It's great. It's awesome. They never give much to me, but they give it to each other and to their friends. Oh, you don't have any candy? No big deal. I have some. Here, take some of mine. I have a ton of it. But when they have little of it, they don't share it. Too many of us are living like God forgave us pennies. So when he asks us to forgive, we say, God, I'm sorry, but I can't afford it. I don't have enough, God. But when you come to terms with the fact that he's forgiven you billions, you can share pennies, can't you? Heck, you could share thousands because he forgave you a billion dollars. What's a few bucks for your freedom? Radical forgiveness can be given if you realize the forgiveness you've received is radical. If you don't come to terms with the fact that you've received radical forgiveness, you're never going to show radical forgiveness. Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy were both Christians, and they were arrested for hiding Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation of Holland during World War II. And Betsy died in the concentration camp, but Corrie lived through it. After the war, Corrie went around. She went around preaching about God's forgiveness in Christ for those who've hurt us. Right? Think about this. Nazi Germany, Nazi-occupied Holland, France, Europe. She's going around saying, forgive, forgive, forgive. But one day, after one of her talks, a guard from the concentration camp that she was in walks up to her. And she says, I recognized him, but he didn't recognize me. But he heard that she was at the same camp that he was a guard at, So he came to her. He reached out his hand and said, please forgive me. And listen to what she says. She says, since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Listen to this. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars And those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. 
It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I still stood there with the coldness in clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the stretched out one to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing me to tears. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Corey realized what many of us don't realize, and what we need to realize is that she received radical forgiveness. She can even forgive somebody who's responsible for her sister's death. In our world, we can all agree we all hate the Nazis, right? When nobody wants to be a Nazi, we hate the Nazis. Yet Corey was able to show love and forgiveness to one of them because she realizes what she's experienced. Who, who have you not shown radical forgiveness to? Who are you holding back from? Here's my encouragement to you. Draw out a life map, a timeline. This is going to be painful and it's going to hurt, but point out all the places on the timeline of your life where you've been hurt by someone and consider whether or not you've forgiven them. And chances are you'll feel it right in here. And my challenge to you is don't wait for someone to come and ask for forgiveness. Go get it. Go give it. Let them know that you were hurt by them. A lot of people also don't know that they hurt you and you're holding grudges against them. You need to go let them know and see how they respond. And is there anyone you need to seek forgiveness from? Like somebody you hurt and you've been scared to make that phone call. But be quick to forgive. And here's my encouragement to you. Use the words, I forgive you. We need to get out of our vocabulary and in our practice to say, that's okay. It's not okay. Or it's all good. It's not all good. You're minimizing the hurt when you do that. And you're minimizing the forgiveness when you do that. Somebody who really hurts you, it's not okay. It's not all good. It's not. That's not radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness says, yeah, you hurt me a ton, but I forgive you. And parents, you need to model this forgiveness to your kids. Be quick to forgive them. But also be quick to seek forgiveness. If you hurt your kids, if you did something stupid, I never do anything stupid, so you'll have to let me know if you do. And you yell at them and you lose your cool, 
you need to be quick to go to them and say, Dad blew it. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Let's go grab some ice cream. But if you know how much debt you owed and that you've been completely forgiven, you will be quick to do the same for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not quite sure, and a good litmus test may be to just ask yourself, am I showing forgiveness? If not, I might not be a follower of Jesus. Just go to Jesus silently now and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've blown it. Please forgive me. And just receive Jesus' forgiveness now. And for the rest of us, Father, may we realize the forgiveness that we received from you in Jesus and show that same radical forgiveness to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.